Well, we've come to the last of the Ten Commandments in our series through the Ten Commandments. So if you would turn with me again to Exodus chapter 20. And I'm going to read just the Tenth Commandment here this morning. Exodus 20, verse 17. Hear God's holy and infallible word. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Lincoln Duncan tells the story of uh, Jay Adams when he was, if some of you know who that is, was invited many years ago to preach at a large, very large church in Virginia. And he preached on worry, uh, whether from Philippians or maybe from Luke 12. We read earlier this morning, Jesus says, do not worry. And in his somewhat uh, provocative style, sometimes Dr. Adams just began with asking, how many of you here are murderers? And nobody in the huge auditorium raised their hand. And then he said, well, how many of you are liars? And apparently one guy in the back row raised his hand and He said, well, at least there's one honest person here. Then he said, how many of you are worriers? How many of you worry? And just about every hand in the entire room went up. And Dr. Adams said, we we know we're not supposed to murder. We know we're not supposed to tell lies. We don't want to be associated with those outward sins. But do you realize this passage uh, that they were looking at is equally a command? Do not worry. And and part of the point was that God commands the heart, uh, not just actions. And we've considered that that principle as we've gone through the Ten Commandments. That applies to all ten of the commandments, as as, uh, maybe Jesus made most clear in in teaching that uh, lust is adultery of the heart. Anger makes you a murderer in the heart. Uh, God commands not only actions, but thoughts and hearts. Uh, When we first introduced that, principle in the introductory sermons this series, I um, told the account of a, a tribal leader who came to understand uh, the Bible and the God of the Bible through some missionaries, and his uh, tribe uh, somewhat famously had a moral code of 7,777 laws, uh, rules for their religion. And this, this leader came to conclude that he would rather have the 7,777 uh, law code uh, of his religion, then the Ten Commandments, because the God of the Bible, he said, presumes to command the heart. And that was, that was foreign to his religion. Well, all of the Ten Commandments speak to the heart, but only one of them does so directly and uh, explicitly, exclusively. And that's the Tenth Commandment uh, that we've come to today. Uh, coveting is not something that's visible. Of course, it works, out in, it works itself out in visible ways, but, but you can't see coveting. It's, it's something that happens in the heart. And as such, perhaps the Tenth Commandment condemns us more readily than the other nine. We, we might convince ourselves that at a cursor surface level, at least, that we're keeping the other commands. I, you know, I respect my parents generally. I, I don't kill people. I don't steal. I haven't committed adultery. We might say, but, but who could possibly say, I've never coveted something that someone else has, uh, or I've never been discontent with my situation or my circumstances, my health. Uh, 
So even on its face, the 10th commandment, perhaps more readily than any other, shows us our sin nature, our selfishness, our pride, uh, and so shows us our need of a Savior. Uh, It seems that that was Paul's testimony uh, about the 10th commandment. If you remember in Romans chapter 7, uh, he he talks about the 10th commandment explicitly. Uh, he, He explains sort of what a, what a great person he thought he was, a law keeper, just a generally very good guy. But then he says that was before he really understood God's law, which is what we're trying to do in this series. And, and then he says in, in verse 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And then he goes on to explain, it seems, that it was particularly the 10th commandment that exposed his need of grace. He says, for I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, ceasing, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. He seems to be saying it was particularly the Tenth Commandment that showed me all kinds of sin, but once I understood it rightly. So I, I trust that if we carefully and, and honestly look at this final command today, we'll see the depths of sin again. Um, but also that will, that will point us to God's grace in, in pointing us to our real need of a Savior, uh, and pointing us to more ways that we can love others, that we can love God, that this command points us to, and find greater peace and joy in our God. So, again, today we're going to look first at the, the prohibitions of the Tenth Commandment. What, is, uh, what does God forbid here? Uh, what is it to covet? Uh, and then we'll look secondly at the why of the Tenth Commandment. What, why is it that God shows us the evil of the Tenth Commandment uh, of coveting? What, what is he graciously protecting us from? Uh, and then finally, we'll consider the positive call of the Tenth Commandment. Uh, what is the positive side? And that's, that's really a huge topic. In some ways, I think the positive call of the Tenth Commandment is a summary of the Christian life. Uh, but, but we'll touch on that as well. So looking at number one in your outline... Uh, coveting and desire. Uh, and if you look at verse 17 in Exodus 20 here again, it speaks of coveting all kinds of things that someone else has. It's not meant to be uh, an exhaustive list, uh, and, and there's not really a point in, in looking at all of these individually. It's, it, the idea is anything that belongs to someone else uh, that you're, you're desiring, that you don't have. So the Tenth Commandment has to do with desire. Wanting things, desiring things you don't have, or maybe something you have and you want more of. And that immediately immediately raises the question then, uh, does the Bible forbid desire? Does the Bible forbid wanting something that we don't have? There are religions that uh, lean in that direction or or maybe basically teach that. I think biblically the answer is, is clearly no. There, there may be a fine line, a, a sort of slippery slope from a good kind of desire into sinful desire, into coveting. But there are many good things uh, to desire in, in a moderate and righteous way. Uh, necessities like food and safety. Uh, these are good things to want and to work towards. Um, friendship or marriage or meaningful work. These, these are good desires, uh, things to strive for. The Psalms are full of expressed desire for safety or for peace or various other things. The Bible encourages hard work and planning towards a desired goal. Uh, and again, 
contentment, which, as we'll talk about again later, which is really the, the lack of coveting, uh, is not just a, a stoic resigning ourselves to whatever happens. You know, as if we have nothing to do with it, we can't, uh, it, it's not a responsibility to work hard or strive towards things or steward what God has given to us. That's not Christian contentment. Surely Jesus experienced human desire. He experienced hunger and a desire for sleep and friendship. Uh, and, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, especially, Jesus actually expressed a desire that in some sense was different from the will of his Father. That felt human desire. But, but And here is the key to the difference between legitimate and moderate desire for a good thing and coveting. Jesus' desire was submitted entirely to the Father's will. Right? His example of godly desire was that it was dependent. It, it was rooted in uh, the person and promises of the Father with love for him and love for his will. Um, it's, it's a desire that does not make our, our joy and our patience and our ultimate satisfaction dependent on that thing that we want, right? um, even if it's a good thing. So the coveting of the 10th commandment, uh, one person defines it in this way, it's inordinate, ungoverned, selfish desire for something that is not yours. So not just simple desire, but, but an inordinate, a desire that goes too far, um, ungoverned, selfish desire for something that's not yours. Another uh, defines it this way, wanting the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. And implied with coveting, the kind of desire that coveting is, uh, implied along with that is discontentment. Right? You're, you're, not, you're not content without that thing that you want. Um, to some degree, your happiness, your contentment is conditioned on getting that thing. Coveting is desire that, that comes to control you in some way. Right? It controls your emotions. Uh, again, it's often a desire for a good thing that becomes a sin, though, when it, when it essentially becomes an idol. It, it uh, enslaves, it controls you, it drives your emotions. Uh, James, uh, in his letter, uncovers coveting in chapter 4. Uh, when he begins that chapter asking, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And, and he could have also asked, what causes anger and disappointment and annoyance and short tempers and impatience among you? He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, you desire and do not have? Right? He says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And, and he might have concluded, you, or you, uh, so you whine and you complain and you feel sorry for yourself or you lack patience and so on. All of these things uncover coveting in our lives, in our hearts. In some ways, the sinful condition is, the human condition is summed up by the 10th commandment, wishing we had something that we don't, or wishing that our lives were different than they are. Uh, it's, it's maybe the earliest sin to manifest in little humans, right? It's one that clearly doesn't have to be taught, right? Picture Timmy the toddler playing in the nursery, and he's playing with other toddlers in there. And there's, there's a toy truck in the corner. And Timmy doesn't care about the toy truck. He doesn't want to play with the toy truck. Until when? Right? Until another 
toddler starts playing with the toy truck. And then Timmy has to have the truck. He's not going to be happy until he has the truck. We also not to, ought not to think simply in terms of coveting things, material things. Of course, that's a, that's a big thing. But very often, maybe more often for some of us, we covet intangibles, uh, circumstantial things. Um, verse 17 here in Exodus 20 mentions an adulterous relationship in terms of coveting. Uh, this command relates very closely to sexual desire. That, that's a major application. Uh, but more subtly, we might covet status or influence that someone else has or control over things control over a situation or or a ministry we have to have our hands in on a ministry event or something or we could covet age or looks or talents uh, certainly coveting praise or attention from other people Uh, again these can be good things we can covet friendship in this way Uh, marriage to be married A good thing to desire, but can be desired in an inordinate, selfish, discontent way. Anything that leads to our discontentment in any degree, really, involves coveting. Anything that we would put after the phrase, if only. If only I had this. If only I was this. Uh, Then then life would be easy enough, I could be happy, or I'd be satisfied. Well, this all leads to then the, the why. Why is the 10th commandment here? Why, what is so evil about coveting? Uh, why is it something God calls us away from? So looking at number two on your outline, we'll consider coveting's dead end. Coveting's dead end. And I, I want to put before you two aspects of the dead end of coveting. And the first is this, that, that coveting, we've been talking about coveting as having reference to other people. And it very often does. That's how it's framed in in Exodus 20 here, coveting what someone else has. But coveting is a denial of the goodness and providence of God. It's a dead end because it ultimately has reference to God himself. It's it's a discontentment towards God. This is where human sin began. I think of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. It began with a desire for what was not rightfully theirs. But it, 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 it had a Godward reference ultimately. It, it was rising out of a sense that God was holding out on them. He wasn't being fully fair. He wasn't giving them all he could have given them for their contentment. There's something else that they could have. And he wasn't treating them fairly. That, that was Satan's distortion and lie. And they, they went along with it. Our, our if-onlys are ultimately directed at God. Uh, even though he's given... His only son in our place and delivered us from certain and eternal uh, death and darkness. And he's given us the riches of his grace in Christ and eternal blessed inheritance. Uh, Phil Riken has this summary, which I think is powerful. He says, our discontentment, right, in any way, impatience or whatever it might be our discontentment is an expression of how much more we think God owes us our discontentment is an expression of how much more we think God owes us Uh, covetousness is is all idolatry towards God in one sense it's it's a failing of the first and second commandments uh, of necessity Uh, Paul describes it that way in Colossians 3 He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he lists evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
Right? How does that work? Well, failing to be satisfied in the, in the one God alone, first commandment, and, and essentially worshiping something else which we think will satisfy us and fulfill us, breaking the second commandment. Uh, God in the first and second commandment essentially says, I am all you need. I am the only God. Don't look to, to money or to false gods or to career or friends or health or talents uh, more than you look to me with love and desire. Uh, you are created to be satisfied in your creator. And so the second reason that the 10th commandment by God's design is, is a dead end uh, because you are created to be satisfied in him is that coveting always and uh, fails. Uh, it always ends in miserable disappointment. Uh, if not immediately, eventually. I shared before, maybe a couple of years ago, um, a large survey of Americans at different income levels, and simply asking them all, uh, not you know what would be their dream income, you know, how would you like to win the lottery or something like that, but at, at what income would you be simply uh, settled and satisfied, comfortable, you know, comfortably living the American dream, and and what's incredible and fascinating about that study is that no matter the income level. They asked people at making $25,000 a year and up to a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. No matter the level, everyone's average response was about double their income. The, the trajectory of American wealth is fascinating. Uh, how it's grown. Uh, or the, the median home size, for example, in 1950 was 980 square feet. Uh, and by 2016, it was 2,657 square feet. Uh, since 1970, the average number of people living in a single-family home has gone down by half a person. Uh, and, but uh, the, the average amount of square feet that each person in the home has has doubled. Uh, over the past 50 or 100 years, however we measure it, real median household income uh, adjusted for inflation, has increased by several factors, three times, five times, ten times. Uh, the, the real wealth of, of the average American at the bottom or at the top has grown massively um, over the years. Now, if happiness and satisfaction and security were tied to material possessions and financial security and uh, standard of living and that kind of thing, we would expect a direct relationship between these things. Right? But in fact, by every measure, really, that what we find is the opposite. There's an inverse relationship. By, by every measure, and there could be many reasons, of course, playing into this, but, but there are unprecedented levels today of anxiety and depression and suicide, especially among younger people, and just a general lack of satisfaction in America. Uh, coveting ends in miserable disappointment. Uh, Solomon uh, proclaimed that unequivocally thousands of years ago in Ecclesiastes 5. He said, he who loves money may, be, uh, may not be satisfied. No, he said, will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Again, it's, it's part of our fallen human condition to just want more. Right? Part of our universal human experience that once we get that thing that we want, it feels empty. Right? We, and we move on to the next thing. I came across this poem 
a little while back that expresses this brilliantly. It's apparently written by a 14-year-old at the time, um, and it's called Present Tense. And it goes like this. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days, the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was autumn, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted. To be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 30 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged that I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. Our covetous desires are insatiable. Right? They're never satisfied. Even if we tell ourselves, if only, if only I had this, if only I were this, then I'd be happy. We will get that thing, then we'll move on to the next point of discontentment because it's an issue of the heart. It's not a problem of things and circumstances. That applies, again, even to good things that we might desire. If, if our heart is discontent, if your controlling desire is, say, a good thing like to be married, but it's a controlling and covetous desire, once you're married, you will be discontent in your marriage uh, or with your spouse or with the fact you don't have kids yet or wh- whatever, whatever it is. Or maybe it's health, again, which is a good thing to desire, a good gift of God. But if it's desired in a covetous way, a controlling way, once you get your health back, you'll quickly move on to another thing. Better looks or different talents or or anything. Uh, One writer puts it this way, as long as we base our sense of contentment on anything in the world, we will always find some excuse to make ourselves miserable. Uh, In many ways, the Tenth Commandment points to the root of much of the misery in our society, whatever we call it, anxiety, depression. Uh, It's really related to the great lie that is the concept of self-esteem as well. It's supposed, for example, that depression, uh, to be depressed, is is a problem of low self-esteem. What is needed is higher self-esteem. That's the assumption of many Christians and secularists alike. What is called low self-esteem I think biblically is rooted in covetousness and is rooted in ultimately a very high self-esteem. How does that work? Well, it's rooted in saying, I deserve better. Right? Life is not fair. Why don't I have that? I'm more important than this. I deserve more. Our discontentment is an expression of how much we think God owes us. Our incredibly high self-esteem. That, the scriptures say, is the root of our problems. Low self-esteem is actually rooted in intense pride. It's unfulfilled covetousness that often, not in every case, this is not a blanket statement on every kind of depression or things like that, but very often leads to things like that. So what is the answer? Uh, What's the answer to dead-end covetousness? Uh, What does the Tenth Commandment call you to? What, what, what good and truth and beauty does it call you to? So look at thir- uh, thirdly on your outline, a call, uh, it is a call to contentment. Call to contentment. Uh, one way contentment is often defined, uh, even among believers, uh, is, is like this. 
It's being happy with what you have. It's being happy with what you have. And in some sense, that's not wrong, uh, understood in a certain way, but I, I would suggest being happy with what you have is a, de- a definition of contentment is somewhere between unhelpful and completely wrong, biblically. Because what you have cannot make you happy. Right? Our satisfaction is not oriented towards our circumstances and our stuff. As if contentment meant uh, looking at, at all that I have and all that I am and learning to be happy about it. What, what if all of this shrinks down to this? That happens. The basis of my happiness is destroyed. Uh, Christian contentment is being satisfied in the God that you have. Uh, it's Godward. Uh, the positive call of the Tenth Commandment could be summarized as being totally satisfied in Him, in His promises, uh, in His presence with you, His love for you, who you are in Him, and, and not supposing that in an ultimate sense you need anything more or different. And again, that doesn't preclude desiring things that you, you need uh, or want in, in, in a moderate, uh, righteous way, as we talked about earlier. But contentment is wanting what God wants for you more than what you want for you. As with the other commands, we, we need to consider what is forbidden, what's evil, what's harmful, what we're to flee. And we've done that. But we will do better with each of the commands to run toward, even more, to run toward what it commends. And so I want to uh, touch on three ways to cultivate godly contentment. Three ways to cultivate godly contentment. And I'm going to refer a number of times to Luke 12, what we read earlier in Luke chapter 12. But we won't look at it in detail. Uh, The first is this, letter A, by really believing and trusting God. By really believing and trusting God, what he has said. Of course, we, we talk about and profess believing and trusting in God all the time, but I'm emphasizing the really. It's, it's real in your heart. Uh, discontentment dies when we believe what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. When, he, when we believe his promises there, that God is with you. He loves you and cares for you unconditionally and constantly. That he will provide for you. That he has a kingdom and eternity uh, without sin for you. Uh, C.S. Lewis notes, and I've heard Rich refer to this quote before, uh, that it's not so much that we desire too much in one sense. It's that we desire too little. Our, Our desires are too nearsighted and perverted to see that God is holding out something bigger and better for us in one sense. Uh, Lewis writes that we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum simply because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, a vacation at the ocean. Uh, Lewis says we are far too easily pleased. And that's true with regard to eternity, but it's it's true now. Uh, In the here and now, in a broken world, we ought to strive for the attitude uh, we'll, we'll sing in just a few minutes here from Psalm 73. It says, There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Again, not that there aren't all kinds of good things to desire and to enjoy, but, but there's nothing I desire in the sense that I, that I need it to be secure, to be at peace, to have hope and joy. That's 
That's the ideal. That's, that's in fact, what God has given to you. Uh, Phil Riken has this comment. The truth is that if God wanted you to have more right now, you would have it. If you needed different gifts to enable you to glorify him, he would provide them. If you were supposed to be in a different situation in life, you would be in it. Instead of saying, if only this, if only that, God calls you to glorify him to the fullest right now, whatever situation you are in. At times we might feel like we have very little in this life. And that may be, may be true in, in, in real ways. Little friendship or little money or little health. Um, Jeremiah Burroughs comments in, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, that even the little that we have is, is dramatically beyond what we deserve, but it is also a down payment, in a sense, of God on the, on the glories that are ours forever. Secondly, uh, pursue contentment uh, in seeking God's kingdom above everything else. Seeking God's kingdom. Uh, this, is, this is where Jesus concludes in Luke chapter 12. Uh, seeking God's kingdom above everything else. That's not to say that there's nothing else that's important, as if your family is unimportant and God's kingdom is important. Or you have to not to consider your work or, or leisure of any importance or good. It's God's kingdom. Uh, rather, God's kingdom is at the top and encompasses all of these other things. It's, it's how you understand and make sense of the rest of your life. Everything is oriented towards God's kingdom. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom. That's a key to contentment. So it comes after his uh, command and reiteration of not worrying. Uh, seeing everything as part of working in and working towards God fulfilling his kingdom in this world. If, if you're working toward a goal that cannot fail uh, in an organization that's indestructible and all-powerful and perfectly good and just, what room would there be ultimately uh, to be discouraged or to despair or want something different? Uh, if you're oriented toward the kingdom of God above all you will know that everything you have, everything you are, everything you do has a purpose uh, by God's design and in his plan uh, to bring about the fullness of his kingdom someday. I'm going to quote again Jeremiah Burroughs, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you haven't read that book, you should. He says, be sure of your call to every business you go about. Similar to what I'm saying here about understanding our, our, our place in everything we do in God's kingdom. It's a call from God. Be sure of your call to every business you go about. Though it is the least business, be sure of your call to it. Then, whenever you, whatever you meet with, you may quiet your heart with this. I know I am where God would have me. When I meet with any cross, I know I am where God would have me. In my place and my calling. I'm about the work that God has set me. And thirdly, third and final way to strive toward contentment against covetousness uh, is to be constantly conscious of Christ in you. Be constantly conscious of Christ in you. And, and uh, of course, here I'm thinking of Paul's secret to contentment from Philippians 4. Uh, it is the secret, he says, whether, whether he's in plenty, whether life is comfortable and abundant, or whether he's in want, which for Paul means uh, being beaten within an inch of his life, or shipwrecked, or imprisoned, 
many things we couldn't imagine. The secret is Christ in you. In other words, contentment has no reference to the things that you have, whether in plenty or in want. It's rooted in the fact that you are in Christ. You're loved perfectly and constantly in Christ, no matter what you have or what you are. Uh, You're forgiven. Jesus took on all your guilt and shame. Uh, You have the inheritance of a prince or princess ahead of you. You have the promise of a new and perfect body like like that of Jesus Jesus himself. You are in Christ. So in those things, may God destroy the root of covetousness in us and give us joy and peace in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity again this morning to study your word together. We thank you for your word, that it uh, gives light and hope and direction. Uh, Thank you for these weeks we've had to study your good and perfect law uh, that is a gracious gift to us, that describes uh, your character and who you are creating us to be in Christ. And so we ask once again that you would uh, be shaping us Uh, after the person and the character of Christ, uh, our Lord. Uh, May you do that by your Holy Spirit. Give us uh, careful reflection on these things. Uh, Lay these things up in our hearts, that we would practice them in our lives. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.